Hello, and welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the Quadcast. We are so lucky to be joined today by Dr. Jesse Gold, Assistant Professor and the Director of Wellness Engagement and Outreach in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University in St. Louis School of Medicine. She works as an outpatient psychiatrist and specializes in college mental health, workplace mental health and burnout, and normalizing psychiatry and decreasing mental health stigma through storytelling and popular media. Dr. Gold, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So jumping right in, I found it so interesting that in your clinical practice, you see both students and faculty and administrators. So you have a really unique perspective into the mental well-being of campus as a whole, and even how these different stakeholders and populations and their mental health interact with one another. Could you speak generally to what you hear from faculty and administrators regarding their role in student mental well-being? Is it a source of worry or stress? Is it something that I would imagine has changed since the onset of the pandemic? Yes, all of the above. It's it, Thank you for asking that question. It is a really unique perspective and I don't get to talk about it very often because people often ask about students and don't ask about faculty and then faculty get sad that they don't get to talk about their own mental health because it does affect them. And as college mental health has become more of a conversation and the strain and stress on college students has become greater, the people that they turn to first and foremost are faculty members. It is their coaches. Those are the people that notice things. They notice students not turning things in on time or not showing up to class or only wearing sweatpants. They notice behavior change. And so they're the people that really are the first line of defense, but they're not a psychiatrist. And that's a really hard thing to hold because nobody really trained them to be the person holding people's feelings, people's mental health, and really talking to people about that. And so a lot of faculty members struggle with having to be that person and listen and support and not feel adequately prepared to do that. I go to four years of medical school, four years of psychiatry training, and then still don't always feel adequately prepared to handle listening to people's stuff all the time. It takes a toll. It's why I go to my own therapy. I think it's really important that we don't just assume that's an easy task for people, and it's not. And what I hear from people is it's not. And so it does take a toll on faculty to have to be the sort of receptacle of that and not feel adequately prepared to do that. And at the same time, I think they also are sort of the scapegoats of the anger, right? It's not always the faculty's fault that students are, you know, not getting exactly what they want in a systems perspective, but they're the ones that students see. And so (laughs) they're mad about this policy or they're mad about the way that they're getting talked to about mental health leave or about accommodations. And the first line of defense, again, is faculty members or coaches. And so faculty get a lot of anger as being like the symbol for that. And it's not often their fault. And they often don't have a lot of power to change that. But it's not something that students really know because they aren't involved in all of the layers of administrative bureaucracy that goes into changing all of these policies. And they shouldn't be. But it makes that 
really hard for faculty too, because not only are they the first line of defense and not prepared to hold that, they're also the first line of like anger. And that's a lot to hold too. Definitely. At MCI, we did a faculty survey several years ago, amid COVID, we partnered with the Healthy Minds Network. We did not mean to do a COVID mental health survey, but that's the way it happened. And so that's sort of, we began our work before the pandemic hit. And then afterwards, it seemed like everything had changed. We're getting back to a more normal place. Or we're certainly back at a more normal place. And I wonder if faculty have been feeling like they were more of the go-to. They were the first line of defense, certainly during COVID. Oftentimes, they were the only ones seeing these students since they weren't on campus. And then I wonder if that hasn't really gone away, if those relationships have still stayed there. I'm saying this, we had a meeting with our National Youth Council, which is a group of students from all over the U.S. at different schools around the U.S., graduate students, undergraduate students, just last night. And they were all speaking about these interactions that they had with faculty that were really positive for the students, where the faculty were really understanding about their need to take care of their mental health. I'm wondering if you know if faculty feel like things have just changed since the pandemic and are not going back to how they once were. A lot of things have changed since the pandemic, and I don't know how much they're going to go back. College mental health was an issue. Obviously, you knew that before the pandemic. It's only compounded it. I think the stressors were there. It's a time of a lot of change, a lot of identity development, a lot of just experimentation. All of those things can lead to increased mental health conditions, mental illness. But at the same time, it's also an age where a lot of mental illness comes out. So things like bipolar and schizophrenia come out around that age. So it, it, even before the pandemic, it's just a really risk factor heavy group. And then the pandemic came and what college was supposed to be was not what college was. And that's really hard when you've been dreaming about college for a really long time. And you have this image from TV and movies of what college is supposed to be. And that's not what it is. And you really the social aspect of college is such a big part of college is such a big part of the identity development of college, the peer part. And without that as much, it's pretty lonely. And that definitely contributed to the change in mental health conditions in that population, like the increase in anxiety and depression that maybe we would see with some of those folks. Definitely some trouble concentrating because of having to do stuff virtually, and that's a very different style of learning. So all of these changes are different changes. And I think even if you take those stressors away, it compounded existing ones. So that didn't mean that it went away. And things like trauma too is like long lasting, no timeline, who knows when those things are going to go away. So you know, the, the sheer volume of need is going to be high and is going to stay high. And so, you know, for faculty, they're going to see that more and already became accustomed to seeing that more. And I think tried to become more informed at seeing that more, at least some faculty members, probably the ones you're talking about. And those faculty members probably did a good job identifying themselves as people who were good supports. So you can do that by mentioning mental health, by talking about it in a more vulnerable way. And that kind of signals to students that you get it. I think students probably know which teachers get it and which teachers don't because it's probably passed around. And so maybe people even take classes that those teachers are well known for being people that are more supportive. And I think that definitely happens. I think no matter what, 
we should feel more comfortable going to our friends and our faculty and our coaches than we do going right to seeing a treatment provider, right? Like not everybody needs to see a psychiatrist, not everybody needs to see a therapist, and not everybody can, right? Like access is a huge problem. So if every single person who was struggling had to see a therapist, we'd need millions of therapists. (laughs) Like it's just not feasible. So we need to be able to feel comfortable going to our peers and going to our faculty for that. And so that requires making sure that faculty feel able to do that and that students feel safe and like the faculty are trustworthy in that sense. And so whatever barriers got broken down in COVID because of that, I hope that they stay. I think maybe some of that is because we can't hide our humanity and vulnerability when we're at home dealing with similar things. I think it's a lot harder to be, I'm up here and you're down here and that's just the way it is when you're also really struggling. And that maybe made a big difference too. Yeah, definitely. Even seeing people in their own homes and on Zoom has changed that. You've alluded to this a bit, and I just wanted to talk specifically about the other side of things, students that you see in your clinical practice. How is their well-being impacted by their relationships with their professors and faculty and other academic stressors like certain academic policies that might be in place? College very much sets the bar for stress due to academics. I think people go to college and their goal is usually to use that to go to something else. It's like our job is to do school, to then do more school or to get a job. Like it has this sort of purpose that gets you to another place. But because of that, you feel like you have to not only get into a place that can get you to the next step, but you have to do it in a certain way and do it in a, like, basically be perfect. And that's really hard. Not Most people aren't perfect. I don't know anybody really who is. And that kind of pressure is really hard for people. I think it's really hard to know at 18. 17 even for some people, like what you really want to do for the rest of your life and and to know that like that's the decision you're going to stick with forever. There's not a lot of room for uncertainty. There's not a lot of room for questioning. There's not a lot of room for exploration, even in places that are like generalized education places, like people are still really pushed to choose early about what they're doing and everyone else seems to know what they're doing. And that is a lot of pressure for people that makes it really hard to do much else other than school. A lot of people I talk to really judge their well-being based on their school performance. So if they're doing really well in school, they're fine. If their school performance at all struggles, then they might not be fine anymore. I really don't like that as the limit because we have learned school our whole lives and actually can robotically do school. And it's not helpful as a measurement because I'll be like, cool, you're getting all A's, but like, what did you do all week? And they're like, well, I ordered takeout and I slept all day and I haven't seen anybody. And you're like, well, there are these other aspects of your life that don't really seem great, (laughs) right? It really does seem to me like you're struggling. And so we do get this sort of tunnel vision around academics in that setting. And it makes it even hard to know when you're struggling because you just say, well, I'm getting A's. And that's not a helpful measurement. And so 
I think not only is the stress coming from there, we just put blinders on to the rest of our life in a lot of ways, especially when we're struggling. And as long as our struggling is not interfering with our ability to get to that next step and to succeed, we just try to ignore it. And that's not helpful. And that often leads people to be quite by the time they ask for help, because by the time it's interfering with academics, like you probably ignored the 20 other things you would have seen before if you're paying attention. So it can be helpful to have faculty or friends that you can talk to about this stuff because sometimes they notice before you. So it's really hard to notice things in yourself. That's why people go to therapy too. Like it's just, you can try, you could read all you want about signs and symptoms, but actually applying that to yourself is difficult. Like I'm a psychiatrist who specializes in burnout and I didn't know I was burnt out until my therapist told me I was burnt out. Like that's an extreme example, but the reason I'm giving it is just to say like, if it's a problem for me and I spend all day talking about this stuff, it's going to be a problem for anyone who just reads about it or, you know, sees it on TikTok or something. And so I think it's really important to have people that you feel like you can have open and honest conversations with or who can feel comfortable actually saying like, I noticed that you're not doing X or that you haven't like wanted to hang out as much. Like, I just want you to know I'm here. This stuff reminds me a lot of, it was called the Gallup-Purdue Index, the finding that there are like six experiences in higher education that lead to lifelong well-being. And it's not getting straight A's. It's having a mentor, having a faculty member that cares about you as a person, having a faculty member that makes you excited about learning. All of these things are so connected. I, I also think about the Dr. Lori Santos work on the happiness class at Yale where she talks about you have Yale University, like these students uh, have been high performing students their entire lives. And then she brings them into this happiness course. And she's like, I'm not going to give you a grade or I have to give you a grade, but your grade is not going to be based on like how many words you write or how well written it is. It's like, you have to get these concepts of what makes you and yourself happy and the students are still like, but what is my grade? <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's so interesting to think about those things. There are these aspects outside of academics that are so important to well-being. And I think that is missed. And it's missed at a lot of these schools like Wash U. And I know we have a student on the youth council from Georgetown who talks about this a lot because you feel that you have to spend so much of your time on your academics and just getting the grade that you got in high school that got you into that college. Yeah, you just don't have time for anything else. Like I've had patients be like, well, I don't have time for like that one activity for well-being. And there are definitely things that don't take up a lot of time. Like maybe a yoga class takes up more time than trying to learn a quick like self-compassion skill. So I think it's also important that people realize like when we talk about this stuff, it's stuff that you will do and actually want to do. It doesn't have to all be these like huge things that take up time. But it's also that like that time actually makes you better at school or makes you better as a friend or makes you better at studying. Like it's not taking away. It's actually adding. Definitely. I relate to that needing to take time to be better as I think about as my experience as a mom, like I will be better if I go for a run or go outside and breathe fresh air. I will be more patient. I will be <laughs> all of the things that you need to be. Are there policies or programs that you think could get to this campus as a whole, improving 
or having a positive impact on community-wide well-being, like it's going to help faculty and administrators, is going to help students, or would be be better served to try and address those populations' well-being separately? I think it's important to think about them separately, but also together, right? So I think we ignore faculty a lot in these conversations because the students tend to have more funding and tend to be reactionary policies. So something bad happens on a campus and you have to do something quickly. And that makes sense. But it's also sad that those are the campuses that tend to have the most resources and the most investment in in mental health of students. So we, we don't want to all be doing that. We want to be thinking about this more systemically. And we want to be thinking about this like across the board for everyone, because if the faculty are healthy, they're going to be able to model that better for students too. So it does trickle down. So you want to look at both. I think thinking about it across the spectrum is really important too. So while it's really important that you do have access to care and that that care is like available and accessible to people and it matches their needs. So definitely people want specific kinds of providers. They need to be able to have access to them in some way. It doesn't have to be in your student health center, like through a digital app or something. That's an intervention. Usually people are doing that when they have signs and symptoms and they have a need. You have to think about what about the prevention side of things. So that's peer support. That's being able to talk about this in a way where, you know, signs and symptoms are something that you're tracking, that you're noticing, that you know what your own signs and symptoms are. So you could notice change. We don't spend a lot of time actually going like, well, how am I? (laughs) And that's like something that if you did, you'd actually notice when you aren't good, like fine and okay aren't feelings. But if we actually took the time to ask ourselves that, and wait for the answer and not judge ourselves for the answer, we would notice differences. Sleep, super important on college campuses, super important to everybody, definitely something that's preventative. And I know that everybody hates when doctors tell them to sleep, but it turns out it's really, really important. I think there are some schools that teach faculty kind of signs and symptoms and how to talk to students. And I think that's helpful. And they do the same thing for students like mental health first aid. I think that makes a big difference because just being able to talk about this and have a common language and know when something is really bad, when something changes is really important because that's not something they teach you in school. And that's actually something they should teach you in school because it's helpful. Also knowing like basic emotion regulation, kind of coping skills, things that you like, they should have taught us that in elementary school and they didn't. And so that kind of stuff is also helpful to learn like in parallel with stuff that you're doing in, in school. Like you're right, things like the happiness class, things like Stanford has design your Stanford or design your life, Mm -hmm. those kind of things where they like incorporate CBT skills like cognitive behavioral therapy skills into really academic planning so people aren't so frustrated by seeing their actual need. Like it's not just like woo-woo fluffy stuff to people. They're able to say like, oh, I actually can use this to be better at my job, to be better at school. Like this is why, here's the thing. And it's not taking up all my time. Like those kind of things. Oh, and I can get course credit for it. Like do make a difference because it's not just asking people to do stuff on their free time. It's asking people to do it with the realization that it's really important to them and to to show importance. Sometimes you have to show value and value sometimes in money. Sometimes it's in course credit, right? I also think that 
broadly, all policies need to include a thought about mental health. It's a newer thing to be doing that, but I think it's really important. So things like family leave, things like sick leave, things like actually needing medical leave and being taking time off and coming back, those all need to have really good thought about mental health and be like, really thoughtfully plan to help you think about those policies because they do affect people's mental health and just broadly applying all policies to people tends to have pretty detrimental outcomes in ways that you don't expect. So I think a lot of those things are really important to consider through a mental health lens. And maybe that's a newer aspect of thinking about this stuff, but it's a really important one. Thank you so much. I, I love that you mentioned the Stanford Designing Your Life. We just did an article about that in Learning Well magazine, which is our new publication. And I just found that to be such an interesting, I do want to go back to college and take that course and just be in that that lab seems so, so enriching. Good book too. And they have Design Your Work Life too, I think now. So that something like that's applicable to faculty too. Definitely. I loved your point about faculty modeling healthy mental health and healthy behavior for their students. You write a lot about the effect of self-disclosure, including like figures in pop culture. So for example, if a pop star publicly comes out and discloses a mental health diagnosis or a treatment that it could potentially help to break down stigma for younger people, we have talked a little bit about whether influential people closer to home might have a similar effect, like a professor or an administrator. Do you think that is something that could impact student well-being? Is that a dangerous place for faculty to go? Or are there other risks there? So I am full disclosure, I talk about I already did in this podcast, I talk about my own mental health as much as I can, because I think that especially in my position as a psychiatrist who works in this space, I think that it's like my duty to I don't think that everybody owes people their story. And actually, nobody really owes anybody their story. I think it's really your choice. I just think given my role, I've made the choice to do it. But that being said, from the celebrity side, like name somebody like Naomi Osaka or Simone Biles, and you can see the outcomes that had, like even just in getting people talking about it more and getting people who might not have felt like mental health was for them or for their community, and they couldn't recognize themselves in it. And that's really important because a lot of the figures on TV, when they have mental illness, which is rare, they they don't look like most of the population. And then they tend to be like mistreated or it's a joke or it's disparaged or there's a good data out of the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative around this stuff. And I think that is what we're taking in, right? Like if I talk about my mental health, I will be made fun of or someone's going to think I'm violent. So to counter that message, you need to see like, well, look at these people talking about their mental health that I look up to, that I identify with, that I love in every other aspect of their life. Like they're not a worse person (laughs) because they struggle. And that's really a big thing. And that really changes the conversation and it maybe it makes people like a little less afraid at least to talk about it. There's not clear data that it always like leads to them taking that next step to getting help because talking about it just is one step, right? Like then you still need to be able to access help and all of that stuff. But talking about it is huge to making this just as boring. Like we want mental health to be boring. Like Going to the general doctor is boring. So should be going to a therapist. Like we shouldn't really even want to talk about it. It should be boring. Faculty can play that role. I think some faculty 
can play the role if they want to, where they actually talk more about their mental health like I do, where I will say that I've had depression, where I will say that I've been on medication, where I will say that I've really struggled and that I did struggle in college. And I think that makes a difference and it makes people feel like, oh, look, like she's got her stuff together now. <laughs> like it, 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 it seems okay, right? Like seems to work out. And like it, there is like, we call that sort of like the holder of hope in, in a therapy sense, which is like sometimes your therapist can represent that, which is like somebody who like seems to be okay and like has their stuff together. But you know what I want faculty to realize is like when I talk about self-disclosure or when I advocate for more vulnerability, like I don't need every single person to do that. Like I don't need everyone to say like I have depression and I'm on medication. We need some people to do that just as much as we need some Simone Biles and some Naomi Osaka's. But we also need some people to just be like, college is hard. We fail. I don't always succeed at everything. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got to college. I tried a bunch of things until I figured out I liked it. Turns out I started a job and still didn't like it. Like these things that just show that like career paths are not linear and people fail and like tests like the MCAT are hard (laughs) or that sometimes people think they want to be a doctor and they don't. Like these kind of narratives that people just don't get and they don't think are possible are really easy to start by just saying like in class or opening conversations where you have just conversations like about difficulties or you say like when you pop into class like sorry I'm late I didn't sleep last night right like that's not a hard big lift that just shows you're human and I think the little glimpses of humanity are just as important as the people who do the full-on self-disclosure because that little glimpse of humanity says to the student like if I don't sleep or I'm struggling I think I could tell that person I think that person would be receptive to it I think that I could probably have a bigger conversation with that person about what's been going on with me and that's really important I love that view. And I I love that phrase holder of hope. I'm going to keep that with me and use it going forward. And that was just, I think that's a great place to leave it. It's super uplifting. And I have a lot of hope that that is where we're headed. And I have heard a lot of examples of that being where we're headed. So more, I guess we'll see. Thank you so much for coming on the quadcast. This was such a great conversation. And it's been so great to get to know you. Thanks for having me. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for the MC Feed, our weekly news roundup, and Learning Well Magazine, a publication at the intersection of higher education and lifelong well-being. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. 